All right. We're talking about covenant. In September, we always talk about relationships, and we're talking about covenant. Oh, kids, yes. Yes, kids. If you're fifth grade and younger, there are classes upstairs. They can head right up these stairs. Um, if you're visiting with us and you want to see where your kids are going, you're welcome uh, to go see. Or if you're like, no, just send them, absolutely. You can. They, can. they can follow the herd upstairs, and they'll rejoin us for worship at the end. All right, so we're in covenant. Um, and let me just say, if you weren't here last week, uh, talking about covenant is fraught with a lot of difficulty uh, because we live in a culture that doesn't really honor covenants anymore. And so um, in the first century, the same thing was true, that um, the, the Roman culture didn't honor covenant like the people of God. And so when Paul would preach on covenant, people would be like, oh my goodness, um, I don't fit any of those things, or I've screwed it all up. Or, and he was like, listen, when you hear the truth, stay where you're at. Like, right? There's a point you've got to say, at this point, I've understood the truth, and I'm going to live it out. You can't spend your whole life in regret. You can't spend your whole life saying, like, oh, my, I should have done that. Let me live in condemnation for the rest of my life. You can't live like that. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? So at some point, you've got to be able to say, like, you have a testimony. <laughs> you've got to stop looking at past things that didn't go either how you'd wanted to or maybe things that you screwed up even. You can't keep looking back and saying, like, that's a big mark on my name. No. At some point, you've got to realize that's a testimony because you're not where you were. Or God rescued you out of a situation you didn't make. Whatever happened, you're not where you were. Jesus entered the equation, and he's at work in your life, and that's a testimony. And you probably have a testimony people need to hear because there are people that are probably in the very same situation you were, whether it was a situation you found yourself in without your choosing or with the situation you made, either one. There are people who are there who feel like there's no hope, who feel like, what's the future look like for me? What do I have to, what can I say? There are people who feel like at this point in life they have failed. And when they hear your testimony about how God took you out of the miry clay and set your feet on a rock to stay, like, let me just tell you, you're going to breathe life into people. So if there's things that come up for you and it feels like condemnation, you've got to know if you put that under the blood of Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you've got to start looking at what your testimony is. Let me just say that right up front. Because guilt and shame does not come from him, not if you put things under the blood, not if you've turned your life to him. There isn't room for guilt and shame in your life. You can't walk, you have to know who you are in him. You are a son and a daughter of God, and in each one of our lives, Christ is making all things new. Can we just start there? Okay. Okay, so we'll just start there. So, there's hope in this room. And there's grace in this room. Anything you invite Jesus into, he's going to make new. That's just how it is. That's just who he is. It's who he is. He cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his character. It's who he is. So uh, we started on covenant last week, and let's just all get on the same page. So covenant, what is covenant? Um, really simply, you could look at it as an agreement. Um, but a covenant is more than that. We don't really have a similar term, and Lucas is going to bug me the whole time because I'm going to be like this. Okay, I can see half of Lucas's face. In the renovation, we think we're going to strip these things down and make them smaller. 
<laughs> then I'll see three quarters of your face, Lucas. Okay. Covenant. We don't really have a modern day term for covenant. So it's a little, you can't just say, oh, covenant is like this. Um, a covenant is about relationship, right? Um, but it's made more intimate because it's enduring. It is both about love and law. Covenant has those two things mixed in, right? So, for instance, you have marriage covenant, which is a relationship based on love, but it's also legal, which makes it permanent and enduring. So you can have a relationship based on love, that's great, um, but its degree of permanence, who knows, if you move away, are you still friends? If you, right? When you have a covenant with somebody, not only is it built on relationship, but it's also got legal consequences to it. So a covenant is a relationship made more intimate because it is binding and enduring. It is a legal relationship, but it is more than a legal relationship, and that what is binding and enduring are these pledges of love and relationship. So often people would make covenant, say in ancient times, they would make covenant to marry families together. So this guy owns all this land, this guy owns all this land, I'm going to marry my daughter to your son, and we're going to legally bind our families. And so there were all kinds of fiduciary <laughs> things going on in that covenant. It was based on this love relationship, but there was a lot of other things that came into it in that covenant. We talked about um, last week how people make covenants. It was like a very bloody, violent thing. So they would take animals, they would cut them up, and they would strewn the pieces of the animal all over the place. There's blood everywhere. And then each person making covenant would walk through those pieces of the animal and join each other in the middle and then, you know, make a deal on it. You know, they'd exchange shoes or something, right? They would, or they'd, they, would, they would say, basically, I'm in covenant with you. And if I break covenant, you can do to me what we just did to these animals, right? I mean, it was like, it was binding and enduring, right? I mean, you don't want to break covenant. It was a serious, serious deal. So we know, uh, we looked at last week in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And God says, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham's like, I'm so old. I have all this stuff. You've blessed me. But what do I do with it? Give it to my servant when I die. I have no son. He says, I'm going to give you a son and make a people through you. And he said, I make covenant with you this day. Go get some animals. And so Abraham gets these animals. He cuts them up. He puts them everywhere. You can read it in Genesis 15. Puts them everywhere. There's blood everywhere. And then God causes Abraham to come into almost like a slumber, but he's awake, but he can't move. And then he watches as God, like in the, this fire, moves through the entire covenant to Abraham, signifying they didn't meet in the middle because God knew that Abraham couldn't keep his end of the covenant. And so God walks the entire covenant to Abraham, indicating, I'm going to carry this covenant. Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told when he brought his disciples together, uh, for their last supper, that he takes the bread and he takes the wine, and what does he do? He says, this is a new covenant. I am making a new covenant with you today. And he breaks the bread and says, this is my body that is broken for you. Like they broke the animal. Oh, stop. And then he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood that is shed for you. Like, I am the animal that was cut in pieces and now I make a new covenant in my own body, in my own blood with you. And what is he saying? I'm going to carry the covenant. 
I'm making a covenant with you. You surrender to the covenant, but I'm carrying all the weight of the covenant. Just hanky wave or something. That, that's amazing. You enter into salvation by surrendering your will to him and saying, you are Lord, I am not. I repent of my sins. And I turn my life to you, right? We surrender to the covenant, but he carries all of the covenant. All of the work to make covenant, he did through his broken body, through his shed blood. He's carrying the entire covenant for us. We just surrender to what he's done. How do you get saved? You surrender to his lordship. How do you stay saved? You surrender to his lordship. You have to know that's what your covenant with him is based on. Because that's where your identity is going to come from. He hasn't just forgiven you of sin so you don't go to hell. What does Galatians tell us? He has made you a son and a daughter. He hasn't just saved you from hell. He has brought you near as sons and daughters of God. And you have to know that your covenant is based on his character and not your character. <laughs> Because on your worst day, you especially need to know who you are. On your worst day, when you've screwed up the worst, you have to know that that's exactly the time when you have to run to him and say, Abba, Father, come running into his throne of grace and throw yourself on his mercy. And if you don't understand your covenant is based on his work that is freely given to you as you surrender to it, that on your worst day, what do you do? You start dying under a pile of condemnation and guilt and shame, and you tell yourself, I've got to crawl out of this hole, and then I'll be good enough for God. And guess what? You never crawl out of the hole because you don't have the strength to. I don't have the strength to. It isn't possible. From the bottom of the hole that we make or someone made for us, you have to know that you can call out to him, and he meets you in the hole. And then you climb on his back, and he climbs out of the hole, right? That's, that's how you get out of the hole. And you only really know that if you understand the work of Christ for us. The covenant made in his blood, through his broken body, through his shed blood. That's how we have covenant. And so now we get to live in this covenant relationship with God where he has made covenant with us. It's about relationship. It's about love. God so loved the world. That's why he did it, right? It's about love, but it is binding and it's enduring. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's binding and it's enduring. The covenant that undergirds every other covenant, relationship, is based on this covenant with God. So we have the opportunity to have more covenant relationships where you get to love each other truly and they're binding and they're enduring. One of those covenant relationships is marriage. The other covenant relationship we have is a covenant community of Christ. How many of you know the church isn't about like um, people come together because they all like the same kind of music? <laughs> like a church should be a covenant community. Like I'm committed to you. And you're committed to me, and not just on my best day, on my worst day. On my worst day, you're still rooting for me, and you're still looking inside me and seeing the identity God has made for me, and you are calling it out of me. Even when what's presenting itself is really ugly. That's covenant. That's what God does for us. And out of that relationship with him, we understand how to love each other well. 
and how to root for each other well, right? But every other covenant relationship we have, whether it's a covenant community of Christ or whether it's a marriage covenant, all those covenants are based on our primary covenant with God. That's the foundation for all covenants. So when I married two people, when I married Lucas and Sabrina, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't officiating a covenant between two people. I was officiating a covenant between three people. There were three individuals in that covenant. And Lucas and Sabrina, or anybody else I've married in the house, right? They weren't making primarily a covenant with each other. They were making a covenant first to God and then to each other. So my covenant of marriage with Mitch, I have a covenant of marriage with him. But in marrying him, I first made a covenant to God in marriage. And out of that, I have a covenant with God in a relationship with him because I'm saved. But in that marriage, I made another covenant to God. Here's who I promise you to be for this person. Like I was first promising God that I was going to keep that covenant and be what I was called to be in that covenant. That's really important. That's super crucial. Because where do you get your strength to be the person you need to be in covenant, whether it's covenant community or in marriage? Where do you get your strength to do that? Yeah, it can't be from the other person. Our culture is finding that out, right? You complete me. No, they don't. No, they don't. You weren't made in their image. You were made in God's image. So when you need strength to love that person, if you're depending on them to fill up your tank so you can love them, you're in trouble. Because you will spend your entire marriage arguing over who's going to fill the tank first. Well, if you're going to talk to me that way, I'm not, right? I'm not going to give you until you give, right? If you're waiting for the other person to fill your tank so you have something to give, that's how you'll spend your whole marriage seeing who's going to go first. If I understand that covenant is with God, then guess what? That's who I go to fill my t- I go to him to fill my tank so I have something to give. I go to him to know who I am. My husband cannot be responsible for giving me identity. You make me brave. You make me Listen, it's not his job to make me anything. Now, when people do it right, what a cherry on top. Like, that's awesome. This room was so alive, and now it's gotten so quiet. <laughs> you have to know, every, our covenant relationship in a community of Christ is based first on my covenant to Christ. If every church in the world could love each other that way, oh my goodness, people wouldn't get offended and break relationship. People wouldn't be like, you know what? When we have greeting time, they never shake my hand. Even though I'm usually sitting near them, that never happened. That's never happened here. I'm just saying. (laughs) What is that signal? I'm coming into a covenant community to say, what can you give me? What can you do for me? How can you complete me? Man, oh. That's horrible. When you come in and you realize, I want to be part of a covenant community because I want to thrive. 
and you come in with your tank full because you have covenant going this way, then all of a sudden, guess what? You find tons of reasons to celebrate. It changes your whole perspective. Listen, <clears throat> church should be the one place where you can be who you really are, good, bad, and ugly, because you've got to deal with stuff with Jesus. How many of you know, as you walk closer in covenant, really ugly stuff tends to come to the surface? Because you're being purified, like he is freeing you from junk. So guess what comes out sometimes when people are in church? Man, the word's just gone out, worship's just happened, the presence of God is here. Sometimes it just brought all the junk right to the surface so it can get skimmed off. So you got to come with your tank filled up with Jesus, because sometimes you see crazy. People who are able to pretend like it's all together at work, they come and now they're undone in the presence of God and a bunch of junk is coming out. Praise God. We can't be afraid of the junk. That's how you get healthy. That's how you get whole in him. If you've got covenant going this way, then you keep your eye on the prize. Like, man, what is God doing in this person? That's awesome. It might be messy right now, but it's awesome. Even quieter. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so in our covenant relationship with Jesus, um, how does that even start? And let me just, just I want to make sure everyone in the room knows because you can sit in church for a long time and not be saved. You can just become a better person, a better citizen, but not be saved. So let me just be really clear on this. Our covenant relationship with God needs to be established because we're born in broken relationship with God. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, there's the fall of man. What happens? God creates man and woman. He creates the world. Everything's good. And then the man and the woman say, you know what? We could be like God. We don't need him. We could be like God. And they sin against God with the temptation of you can be as God, right? And we're still dealing with that temptation today. I'll decide what's right and wrong. I'll decide, Right? We still struggle with that. So in the fall, our relationship with God is broken. There's four major areas. Everything gets broken. There's four major areas of brokenness you can put things in. Number one, our relationship with God is broken. Number two, our relationship to each other is broken. What's the first thing that happens in Genesis chapter 3? The men and women start blaming each other. She gave me the fruit, right? I mean, they just, right? Where there had been unity, now there's this division, how many of you know, everyone thinks they're the only one, but everyone feels lonely to some degree. Everyone feels isolated to some degree. Everyone feels at some time or all the time, at least sometimes, everyone feels like no one really knows me. How many of you had a discovery where you're like, you know what, I'm not the only one who thinks that. Guess what? Welcome to the fallen world. <laughs> There's an isolation we're born into because what? The fall. But Jesus is making all things new. We don't have to continue to live in that way. But that's, it gets broken. What else gets broken in the fall? Our relationship to nature gets broken. Now we're told creation is groaning for its day of redemption. We screwed stuff up. The world is groaning because the world now is affected by sin. What's the fourth area that's screwed up? Now, even within ourselves, there's separation. Your worst arguments happen inside your own head. <laughs> your worst condemnation happens... <laughs> right? Even within yourself. Galatians says, even after you're saved, there's still your flesh and your spirit, right? Everything is broken in the fall. 
And so we need restored covenant with God. We need a covenant to restore that relationship. Well, how does that happen? Well, covenant got broken through rebellion. I don't need you, God. I'll decide what's right and wrong. Covenant gets broken through rebellion. How's covenant going to get fixed? Surrender to his lordship. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost for the first time, um, in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and, and following, and Peter preaches and there's all this fruit that comes from it, what did they They're like, how must we be saved? He says, repent of your sins. Turn to God. Go get baptized, right? There's this idea of you recognize, man, I am far from God, and you repent. Repentance literally means to change your mind. Like there was this way of thinking, and I recognized it's wrong. Now, God, I'm going to surrender to your lordship. I'm not going to live in this treasonous rebellion against you. I'm going to live submitted to your lordship. We humble ourselves. Repentance is the most freeing word in the world because repentance is all about invitation. God gives us the ability to repent so we can enter into relationship. There's a freedom through repentance. And it doesn't just happen with God. Repentance is a doorway to restore relationship with people. Have you ever been at loggerheads with people? And then someone will say, you know what? I was just wrong, and I'm sorry. Like, you are just ready to be like, I'm never, ever going to talk to him again. Like, you're ready to cut that relationship off for the rest of your life. Done with you. And then what happens? Then what happens? Someone says, you know, I'm just wrong, and I'm sorry. And then you're like, oh, no, you know what? I was too. I was too. Right? We shouldn't be afraid of repentance. Repentance is an amazingly beautiful, hopeful thing. When I can recognize I'm wrong about something, and we can actually have it made right. And it can be made right with God because of Christ's sacrifice. I don't have to pay to have repentance make connection. Jesus already paid it. It's a beautiful thing. So we're in rebellion against God, but that covenant can be restored as we surrender to his lordship. You're right, and you are Lord. I am not Lord. Thank God. I surrender to your lordship. Okay. I'm looking at the clock. That's the intro. We're in so much trouble. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Genesis 2. Genesis 2. So I want to look today a bit at the covenant relationship of marriage. Now, listen, not everyone needs to get married, and I, I already did this last week, so I'm not going to go into it again, but the church needs to learn how to honor people in all kinds of circumstances because the Bible tells us if you're single, you should be honored in the church. And at one point, Paul says, if you can, say, if you can stay single, stay single because you can do more work for the Lord. And that's an honorable thing. Not everybody wants to be married. And there's people who want to be married who aren't married. And listen, if they're not, it's because they have standards. <laughs> because anybody can get married. Go to Walmart today and you will know anybody <laughs> can get married. <laughs> so if somebody would like to be married and they're not, that means that they're, they are holding a standard. They're not willing to be unequally yoked. They're not, right? This should be celebrated in the church. Right? Everyone's married. So we're going to talk about the covenant of marriage. And so you may not be married, but the covenant of marriage affects all of us because people come from a man and a woman. And so somehow we're all affected. Marriage produces families, and we're all in a family. 
or we lack a family, and that also has an impact, right? And so it affects all of us. Genesis 2, the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. The word there in the Greek um, for helper is help me, but the word there in the Greek, it's a word that God only applies to a wife and himself. So God talks about that same word in the Greek, helper, talks about how God comes alongside Israel and alongside his people. So just, let me just clear, I just want to say that because sometimes from our culture, we read stuff into stuff and we get offended. Don't be offended there if the word helper upsets you because God uses the same word for himself. And how many of you know in marriage there should be this sense of we are one to reflect the character of God coming alongside one another. And that's true for men and women, which you'll see in Ephesians 5. Men have an obligation to, to be for their wives. What are their hopes and dreams? They want to see those things accomplished, right? So there's this really beautiful picture of why God made us for each other, which is really beautiful. Okay, out of the ground, the Lord formed... Um, every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which he, the Lord um, God, had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and the wife were not ashamed." So there's no condemnation, there's no guilt, there's no sin right here um, in this picture. And God says, man, it's not good for him to be alone. Now think about this. Adam had unbroken relationship with God, and yet there was still a sense of Adam needs companionship with a person. The idea that I'm on a spiritual journey and I don't need anybody else doesn't comport with the rest of Scripture at all. You actually need people. You are made to need people. Not be needy, but to need people. Okay, I'm just going to leave that there for now. And then Matthew 19, Jesus reiterates this. Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay, so let's deal with some hard stuff today. Are we, are we game? Are we game? Okay. The Bible, God, creates marriage. It's his. Governments did not create marriage. Government, our government, in modern history, has gotten involved in marriage, issuing marriage licenses and these kinds of things. You get a tax credit. Why does the government do that? Because the government realizes for society to flourish, marriage is a really good thing. Children do better when they're mom and dad, when they have a mom and dad. This is science. Like, this is just, 
this is a provable thing. No, that's not possible for everyone. Some people have parents who pass away. Sometimes there's other circumstances that happen. But every single study you can ever look at says that children flourish with a mom and a dad the best, right? It creates stability for society. So late in the game, late in history, governments have gotten involved with the idea of marriage to promote it in society, but they did not create marriage. God created marriage. God defined marriage. What is marriage? What does it say? Both in Genesis, first marriage, and what did Jesus say in Matthew 19? What is a marriage? A marriage is between a man and a woman who come together in covenant. It's a love relationship that is binding and enduring. And Jesus warns people, don't mess with people's marriages. <laughs> right? You need to support those things. This is incredibly important. Words and laws cannot change what is true. It is not possible to have a marriage covenant outside of what God created. It isn't possible. You can put any name on something you want, but one man in five women is not a marriage. One woman in six men makes more sense, actually, honestly. That's not a marriage either. I'm just thinking. You'd have a limited number of children and you'd have lots of paychecks. You know what I'm saying? Like it would seem to make more sense than like one guy and there's like 50 children. That just from a practical point of view. Just saying. But neither are marriage. <laughs> neither are marriage. It is impossible for two women to have a marriage covenant. It's not a possibility. God says to Adam and Eve, go forth and multiply, fill the earth. It isn't possible for that to happen when two dudes get together. That's not possible. Now, how we approach that as a church is incredibly important because we can't expect that people who don't know Jesus are going to do stuff Jesus' way. And keep in mind, everything got broken in the fall. Everything got broken. Every single person in this room is broken sexually from the fall every single one of us. Whether you're a heterosexual person who had to discipline your desires before you had a covenant or you don't have a covenant yet, right? I mean, if your hormones are at normal levels <laughs> and you are not married, or if you are married before you got married, chances are, do we have any like small kids in the room? Chances are, you probably wanted to have sex with someone you were not married to at some point. You probably thought, oh, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> you guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> and guess what? You were born that way. And what does God expect you to do? You're born that way. So yeah, just whoever you want to have sex with, do that. That's not what he said. He said there's only one place where that's permissible if you're going to have him as Lord. And that's within a covenant relationship. If you don't have covenant, you don't have what you need to support a sexual relationship. It's going to make people crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Sex without covenant makes people crazy. Maybe not both of them, but one of them will be. I'm just saying. Instinctively, love desires permanence. 
It's just true. It doesn't matter that you were born with that desire. What does God expect that you do? You say no to your flesh. And you say, I want to give into this, but this is only going to produce death. It can't produce life. I'm not doing that. What if someone's born with an uh, attraction to um, same sex? Well, same thing. We're all broken in the fall. All of us. Now, if you're going to live with Christ as Lord, you've got to do it his way. But people who don't know Jesus, come on. We're all broken in the fall. There's, people are looking for love in all the wrong places because people feel isolated. Right in the fall, people feel isolated and alone, and they're reaching out for love wherever they can find it. And you know what? I don't blame them. Of course you are. In a fallen world, life is hard. And it's lonely. So listen, as Christians, we need to understand who we are. Like You've got to know what Jesus says and what you believe. But people who don't know Jesus or have chosen not to follow Jesus, they're not going to live according to Jesus' ways. And guess what God doesn't do? He doesn't control people. Adam and Eve, he gives them the freedom to sin. It's going to have consequences for the relationship, but they have the freedom to do it. He doesn't control them into the right choices. He gives people choice. If you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve's son, Cain, Cain and Abel, their sons, Cain's going to kill Abel, and God knows it. And God comes to him, this is back in Genesis. It's a beautiful passage if you can read it, if you can go back and read it. Um, but God comes to Cain, and he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and it wants to devour you. You have to subdue it. You have urges. You're going to have to control, because I can see your heart. You want to kill your brother. Sin's crouching at your door. You have to subdue it. Cain doesn't do it. He kills his brother. It's the first murder. God knows what's in his heart. He implores him. He wants him to do the right thing, but he never controls him to do the right thing. Cain is still left with choice. So we need to know what we believe and why we believe it, but at the same time, that's not a, it isn't our job to control other people. Now, we're in a bit of a pickle in this country right now in our culture because government can do basically three things. Government can forbid something, government can allow something, and government can encourage something. And we're at a bit of a problematic place in our culture because I think as Christians, we're not saying government forbid. Like, if somebody wants somebody in their hospital room where they're dying, why should I, like... We don't need to have laws that keep people from doing that, right? I mean, we're not trying to control people. The problem is we're not just saying government shouldn't forbid. At this point, government is promoting things and promoting them to our children that are completely opposed to what God says is true. And this is why we find ourselves in these pickles. How we, how we as a Christian community address these things without crossing over into control is a very sticky wicket. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And I think we have to approach those things with a lot of humility and a whole lot of love. But we also have to speak the truth because I'm telling you right now, just from my vantage point, I talk to people who are at the end of the road of making all these decisions apart from God's ways and they're totally broken. 
completely broken. Um, when I was in Ann Arbor, I led um, someone to the Lord who was post-operative transsexual, <clears throat> and um, they ended up getting saved, um, radically saved, like totally surrendered their life to Jesus. But their problem was they were born a man and then post-operative. Now they presented as a woman. Their problem was like there's stuff you can't go back on. So they were like, I will never be able to have children. <laughs> I will like just dealing with how much of their life felt ruined. And they struggled with so much anger because they had been curious about God. And so before they'd made all these decisions, they had gone to a church, but the church they went to was affirming. And so they were like, oh, this is how you're born. This is who you are. And this when they were much younger. And they said if they had just told me what the Bible said, if they had just told me the truth, maybe I wouldn't have made these decisions. So they were really struggling with anger towards people who presented themselves as Christians, but didn't accurately portray what God said because they were trying to be affirming and encouraging. Well, guess what? It wasn't affirming or encouraging because now they're at the end of this road and they're feeling like, what can I, I mean, to this day, they're having so many struggles because they feel like their life is pretty ruined. And there's no doctor who will walk them off of the medication. And you can't just stop taking the medication if you're post-operative, you'll have a heart attack. Like, if you imagine how much stuff has to pump through your veins to get your hormones to reverse, it's, I mean, you die young. I mean, it has detrimental effects no matter what. Um, so you can't just go off of it, and no doctor will walk you off if you're post-operative. So they, they feel very stuck in life, and part of their frustration is, why didn't Christians tell me the truth? I was asking, why didn't they just tell me what the Bible said, even if I disagreed with them? Why didn't they at least represent the point of view, <laughs> the Christian point of view? They didn't. So there's kind of this lie of it's kind just to be like, whatever, everyone's good. Listen, there's times where there's going to be opportunity to speak the truth and people may not agree with you, but you might also find that this person was just desperately searching for anything. And listen, especially for young people in high school and junior high and college right now, there is like this push to like make all your identity around sexuality, like all of your identity. Life doesn't work like that. Life does not work like that. Sexual desires don't define you. Sexual desires don't define you. And many of our sexual desires, we need to put under the Lordship of Christ, no matter what they are. We're right in the middle of it now. Oh, no. <laughs> this is incredibly important for us to understand. Because the lie that we're being fed is, it's just kind to agree. Just get into agreement. If you don't agree, you're a bigot. Well, that kind of sounds like fascism to me. <laughs> and it seems odd to me that in all of history, we have defined through cultures, both Christian and non-Christian, marriage in one way, and now five minutes ago we changed our minds and we can't discuss it? Like, why aren't we having a discussion about this? And the decisions we're making fly in the face of science. 
Scientific studies are very clear on sexual desire and attraction, that it's fluid. It's not as fixed as we think. Like, I was born this way, it's my identity. Events can change sexual attraction desire. Abuse can change sexual attraction. Like, a lot of factors in life. And again, people are, we're broken in the fall. People feel a great deal of isolation. There are people who've been in marriages who now maybe are in, um, I have some friends, <laughs> I don't know how it happens, but we end up with a lot of friends who are um, <clears throat> in the homosexual community, and I think part of it is they're more comfortable talking to a woman pastor maybe than a man pastor. That's what I've just picked up. Um, <clears throat> and for a lot of them, honestly, it has nothing to do with like I was born this way attraction. Almost all of them have marriage stories, being married to a man or like the opposite sex, but it ended badly. And they're looking for love. Like, they're looking to feel a connection and not be alone. So this idea of, like, this fixed nature of attraction is not even, scientifically, it's not even accurate. There's a lot of choices we make about sexuality. But I think all of us could agree with it if we're, like, over 15. There's a lot of choices we make about sexuality. Something else to think about in terms of what we need to change. Um, Tim Keller, who you know I, I like quite a bit, um, He's in Manhattan. He's planted a church in Manhattan. It's huge. And it's almost all people who've gone from unbelief to belief in Manhattan. And so this is an issue he deals with quite a bit. And um, so he has something posted on his website just to deal with the issue. And one of the things that he brings up, which I think is brilliant, is he says, you know, <clears throat> there are lots of books out by people who used to believe um, that homosexuality, according to scripture, was sin, who now changed their mind. And when you read through the books, they don't change their mind based on scripture. It's not like they discovered a scripture they never saw before and are like, oh, I was totally wrong. All the books are like, my son came out, or my friend came out, or this uncle who I love came out, and it changed my mind about the issue of homosexuality specifically. <clears throat> well, here's the problem. Back in the garden, man and woman said, you know, maybe we can decide what's right and wrong instead of God. So you've got to go back to the word. But here's what um, Tim Keller points out, which I think is brilliant. What they've discovered is that they were bigots. They're so shocked to find a kind and wise person who's also homosexual, which shows you just, did, you just didn't like the people. <laughs> of course there are kind and wise people who live sexually apart from what the Bible says, of course there are good people who aren't conducting their sexual life in the way the Bible says. Of course there are. What is revealed in these changes that are not based on theology, but based on someone you actually love presenting as that person, it just shows that you were a bigot. So good riddance to bigotry. We shouldn't be bigots. You shouldn't dislike people because they fit in a category or a group. This is, that's wrong. Are, that's wrong. But it doesn't change what's true about how you follow Jesus. And let me just say, I think for a long time, the church did practice a kind of bigotry. Like when I was growing up in high school, even among like our youth leaders, there would be just like really hard jokes about like homosexual men specifically. And I'm just thinking if there was any kid in that youth group who was struggling, who was thinking, wow, I'm broken in the fall and I'm broken this way. <laughs> we're like, like, this is a brokenness coming out. There's no way they could have talked to anybody about it. They couldn't have talked to anybody about it. 
because there was so much ridicule that was just, con- how many of you grew up there? You know what I'm talking about. Who would they have talked to? Who would they have gone to to say, how do I follow Jesus and also deal with this thing? I don't know who they could have talked to. And so I think sometimes when there's general agreement, because in culture there was still general agreement about right and wrong on these issues, when there's general agreement and you become a bully about it, then when the tie changes in the culture and there's no longer agreement on what you think, guess what's going to happen to you? The same people who got bullied are going to bully. And so now you came to have a conversation, you just get shut down with you're a bigot. Unless you agree with me, you're a bigot. But honestly, that's how the church treated people <laughs> for a long time on these issues. We didn't have discussions about it that were generous to help people understand and come along, understand theologically from the scripture why we believe what we believed. So what do we do? Well, we practice repentance. God, if we treated people harshly and unfairly, if we weren't welcoming them into deeper relationship with you, instead we were shunning them or we were... Come on, then there's, there's room for repentance there. And what does repentance do? It makes way for hope. It makes way for life. Many of you in this room, I mean, some of you in this room, these are struggles you have had, some of the things that I've put my finger on. For many of you, there's family members, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, things. And listen, we have to understand, like, everyone's broken in the fall, and everyone needs Jesus, and people have to get Jesus before they're going to understand any of their stuff. So when people ask me about this, and people do all the time, whether it's neighbors or whatever, they always find me like, we heard you're a pastor. Do you think I'm going to hell? I'm a lesbian. I'm like, oh, man, let's talk about Jesus first. <laughs> like, let's, just, let's talk about Jesus for a minute, you know? But they literally, Mitch could tell you, dinner after dinner, and it's like they just want to have the hard conversation. And I want them to understand, like, you are loved more than you could ever imagine. And you can make a choice to follow Jesus, and that means just dying to yourself and everything. And that's the only way to real life and wholeness. That's not what our culture tells us or our children. It says the way to life and wholeness is do what you want, hedonism. Have what you want, do what you want, be what you want. Take what you want. Listen, this never made anyone happy. And it certainly isn't a source of joy. So I guess I'm, this is this like a lot of threads that are hanging out there right now on that topic, and I'm not going to tie them all together for you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say you need to take those things and pray through those things. You need to go to Scripture, which you can get a concordance, or if you want to PM me and say, if you want to text me or PM me and say, hey, can I have Scriptures on this? I want to theologically understand what the Bible says about these things. Absolutely, I'll send all that stuff to you. But you're going to have to decide how you are going to bring life to people all around you on these issues, because it's everywhere in our culture. All these issues about sexuality, about marriage, are everywhere in our culture. And the thing is, people need to meet Jesus because he's just good. And all the things they're longing for to fill with all these things, doesn't matter what the thing is. In fact, sin, from a very practical point of view, really is filling a legitimate need with an illegitimate thing. From a very practical point of view, that's what sin is. People need to encounter Jesus before they can stop filling those needs because we live in a fallen world. Okay. That was so hard on everybody in the room. Here we go. All right, I'm going to read you this quote from Tim Keller. Real quick. Within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. 
It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. That's what marriage is about from a Christian point of view. Like you get married to someone who you want to serve for the rest of your life. And I mean that to men and women. If you choose to get married, what you're choosing is not someone who can complete you and make you feel good. What can they do for me? How can they make me feel? Uh-uh. You get married because you say, I can see what Jesus is doing in this person, and I want to be in on that ride. I want to be a part of that. How can I serve that vision of what God's doing in them? That's what covenant marriage is based on. That is an entirely different paradigm than our culture's romantic view of marriage, which is all about this person makes me feel so great. Well, that crack can make you feel great for a minute. That is not going to work out. Because there will be a day, and many of them, where they don't make you feel great. Who are you then? Where's your covenant then? Come on. Where the rubber meets the road. Our covenant relationships are not two-way relationships, remember? They're three-way relationships. We are serving God and serving this person. When they're at their worst, we're in prayer and we're saying, God... Who do I need to be in this situation for you to get what you want? Like for you to keep molding them into your image. How do I serve this right now? How do I serve what you're doing right now? It'll change your whole perspective. Because you don't have control issues in that. Right? You don't have resentments in that. Another quote. I'll continue. We must say to ourselves something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony. And he looked down at us, denying himself, abandoning himself, and, betray- and, uh, and being betrayed. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. In the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. Well, we're betraying him. Well, we're beating him. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us, not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That is why I'm going to love my spouse. Speak to your heart like that, and then fulfill the promises you made on your wedding day. Man, that's a whole different paradigm than what our culture gives us, isn't it? Like God is creating something good, and the cool thing is, he's not, in a marriage, he's not just creating something good between the two of you. But for most marriages, out of those marriages come children and family. And now for a thousand generations, God blesses the righteous. For a thousand generations, God blesses the righteous. 530 years after King David died, some of his descendants were screwing up and they deserved death. You know what God said? He said, for the sake of your father David, I will spare you. 530 years later, God was giving grace to the descendants of King David because David loved him. Come on, come on. If you have produced children, whether it was in marriage or outside of marriage, because keep in mind, what we talked about last week, we're going to say, here's where I'm at now, and I'm going to go from here. You can't look back. You've got to start now and say, God, your way. But if you will choose to surrender to covenant with God, and you have children 
to a thousand generations, God will remember your name and keep after them. Come on. You've got to surrender yourself to that. And you know what? You're going to be dead and gone, and he's still going to be there. He can finish the covenant with your children. He's so good. He's so good. Okay, we have like a thousand strings out, which we will finish next week because we've got a, but I want to do some work here because now there's a lot of stuff that is percolated to the surface, right? A lot of difficult things for us to think about. So if you would stand and worship to me, if you would come, here's what I want us to do today. Now, you might need to respond because you need prayer for healing or there might be some other things that you need, but I specifically want to call for some things in the room. <clears throat> if you're in this room and you are saddled with guilt or condemnation because you're looking at decisions you've made and you think, you're thinking right now, I've done it wrong or I've screwed up. Right now, today, you need to surrender that to Jesus. You can cast your cares on him because he cares for you. If there needs to be repentance, then just repent and throw yourself on his mercy and watch him come and bring hope where there hasn't been hope. Maybe you find yourself in a position because somebody else made really bad decisions. And you find yourself carrying a weight, not just grief, which would be normal, but a sadness and a hopelessness about it. Maybe it's even a sense of failure about it, whatever it is. Today, he's here. He is here. Today, you need to release your burdens to him. He will meet you in your place of need. He will meet you. You do not have to carry whatever you're carrying alone. Like if there's circumstances you're in because of somebody else's bad decisions, you don't have to carry that by yourself. He's going to come and carry it. You're going to walk with him, but he's going to carry it. And he's going to make the yoke easy and the burden light. This is what he promises. The second thing, or the third thing, Maybe for some of you, um, talking about the issue of just marriage, which also brings up issues of like homosexuality or um, tr the transgender movement, anything in the LGBTQ stuff, and you feel confusion or you feel like, I want to follow God, but there's confusion, and you, you need God to give you clarity. You need God to work some stuff out. You need to settle in your heart. God, whatever your way is, I'm going to follow it, but you need him to speak to your heart because you can't just be like, this person said this, right? You're going to have to go to scripture and you're going to have to, God, bring revelation to your heart, especially if there's confusion. I know many of you have been like, our culture is like brainwashing at this point. You're going to have to have God bring you revelation about it. It's got to come from him. And I want to encourage you to reach out to him and ask him, come and bring revelation on these issues for me. I need to know from you and your word what's true on this. And then some of you, you're trying to figure out how do I navigate difficult relationships based on this or relationships that I love, but these issues are a part of it. How do I bring life? How do I bring life into the relationships? For some of you, you might realize like, I have just had bigotry. There's just people I haven't liked because they fit in a category. And let me just tell you, God wants to kill bigotry in our lives. That's not good. He wants to bring a freedom. We often hang on to those things because we're afraid if I don't hang on to that, maybe I'll start to get in agreement with sin. No, you can let go of hating people or groups of people and still believe what's true. Because it's got to come from a life-giving place, what you believe.
For some of you, other issues have come to the surface. Maybe there's disappointment in God. Maybe there's hopes that haven't been fulfilled. Whatever it is, listen, when stuff comes to the surface, let's take it to Him. So here's different ways you can do it. There are people here and here that can pray with you. There's also Kevin and Cam back in the alcove that can pray with you. Every single believer in this house has been given the kingdom without measure. So if there's a believer near you, they can pray with you. If you just want to turn it to worship and begin to call it to God. But listen, when God stirs things up, when his word goes out and it stirs things up, you've got to do something with it. Otherwise, you just pile knowledge on knowledge and it doesn't transform us. So if things have come to the surface, maybe you're angry. Maybe you're like, I didn't like any of that makes you angry take that to him too whatever syrup in the house we take to him now amen let's take time to do it
could stop the Lord? For who could stop the Lord Almighty? Who could stop the Lord? Come on, sing it out. For who could stop the Lord Almighty? For who could stop the Lord? Lord Almighty, for who come on, sing it again? For who can stop the Lord? For who can stop the Lord Almighty? For who can stop the Lord? Oh, for who can stop the Lord Almighty? Oh, for who can stop the Lord? sing our God. Our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before him. Our God is the lamb, the lamb that was slain with sin of the world. His blood breaks the chains forever will bow before the lion and the lamb, or every knee will bow before him. Do not forget His great 
faithfulness He'll finish all He's begun So take courage, my heart Stay steadfast, my soul He's in the waiting He's in the waiting And hold on to your hope As your triumph unfolds never failing, he's never failing, if you hold, and you hold the stars, who call them each by name, will surely keep your promise to me, that I will rise. Your victory, and you who hold, and you who hold the stars, who call them each by name, you'll surely keep your promise to me that I. Take courage, take courage, my heart. 
triumphant foes. He's never failing. He's never failing. So take courage. Take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. He's in the waiting. And hold on to your your triumph unfolds. He's never failing. He's never failing. coming to a closer time together. Can we just pray together over just a few things? Just together. Those that are praying with folks, keep praying. But I want to pray specifically in this room, man, if you if you have children on your mind, maybe you have young children or grown children, but man, just your heart is like, God, I need you to straighten out some crooked paths. You know, um, however they got crooked, who knows? But you're like, man, there's just stuff. And I want to see your righteousness flourish in my kids. And you just, you're carrying like a heavy weight. It doesn't feel joyful and hopeful right now. It feels like, man, God, your hands got to move. Your hands got to move for crooked paths to be made straight. I want to pray over you. And here's the thing. Corinthians tells us we can do spiritual warfare. And here's what spiritual warfare is according to Corinthians. The warfare is that there are strongholds in people's minds, ideas, and ways they think things are. What they think is true. They could become spiritual strongholds. And the Bible says that we can come against those spiritual strongholds, that we tear them down. The war is not against flesh and blood. So right now in this room, if you're carrying a heavy weight, you just feel like God... For my kids, maybe they're young, maybe they're grown, but you're like, God, I need you to come and make crooked paths straight for one or more of my kids. Or there's just a worry that things are seated in there. And man, let's just agree together. If that's you and you feel comfortable doing this, would you just lift your hands up and believers around you are going to surround you and we are going to pull down some strongholds. We are going to pull down strongholds. Amen. So if you see some of their hands are up, they're carrying a heavy weight for their children concern, care, worry maybe? Would you just surround them? If you're a believer, look behind you too. There might be hands up behind you. Can we just surround people? We are going to agree together in the house. Let's agree together in the house. There's folks who still don't have anybody. Would you? If they've got their hands up, would you find them? Would you find them? Look behind you too. Would you find them? Come on, come on, come on. Now, if you're a believer and your hands are on them, just begin to pray. You don't have to know all the details. You can just begin to pray. God, we pray for every stronghold that opposes you and your truth. We pray for every stronghold we pull down. Just begin to pray it. 
Just begin to pray in Jesus' name. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, begin to pray in that way too. But we don't know how to pray. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit prays through us. But we don't know how to pray. Just begin to pray. Agree with the person you're touching. Come on now. Come on now. Jesus. Jesus. You are victorious over all things. All authority has been given to you. Every principality, whether seen or unseen, has been put under your feet. And right now, we just pray against lies and strongholds that may have taken root in people that oppose your truth. Father, in Jesus' name, you see the authority of parents in this room authority to speak to these strongholds and tell them to go in Jesus' name. Father, we pray that your truth would be like a clarion call, that whatever the world is telling them, your truth would ring true. Even if they haven't submitted to it yet, your truth would ring true. It would irritate them. It rings so true. Father, right now in Jesus' name, we pull down strongholds. We demolish these arguments in Jesus' name. Father, I pray you'd send people into their path who would confirm your truth. We pray for them to see signs and wonders that confirm your goodness. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Just begin to thank him. Just begin to thank him that he's doing it. Begin to thank him that he's doing it. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight yes. my battles. Yes, Lord. This is how I fight yes, Lord. my battles. This is how I fight my battles. You are all truth, Jesus. You are truth. You are truth. This is how yes. I fight my battles. Yes. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. Yes. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. Yes. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how. Yes. Oh, this is how. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. Oh, this is how. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded yes. by you. Yes. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded yes. by you. This is how I fight my battles. My battles. This is how I fight my battles. Oh, yes. This is how. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles.
shadows oh this is how one more thing we're going to do together <laughs> one more thing we're going to do together before we go listen <clears throat> I feel this so completely I see confirmation of it everywhere I believe that America and the world is perched and ready for the next great awakening I believe it I believe it I believe it. And listen, we have two generations now. My kids are being raised up in the X generation or the um, Y generation, and they've been raised in hedonism. And guess what? They're already discovering it's not true. Miserable with it. The misery rate is so high in ages where it should be hopeful. People should be hopeful. And you know what it is? It hasn't taken them 70 years to realize that hedonism doesn't work. They're realizing it at 20. They're realizing it at 15. They're realizing it at 30. And for a lot of those folks, they've never heard the gospel. They don't know how good Jesus is. And I'm just telling you, Satan has overplayed his hands because there are two generations primed and ready. When they hear the gospel coupled with seeing the goodness of God, they're going to be like, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. This is what's true. They're not going to hear the gospel or see the goodness of God through people who are hopeless and bitter and angry. <laughs> you, cannot, you cannot watch the news and let that set the atmosphere for your life. You see tensions rising. Listen, stuff's about to break loose one way or the other, and I'm just telling you, there is a harvest of souls coming if the church can remember who she is and be filled with hope. Be filled with hope that there is nothing Jesus can't do. We partner with him. There is nothing he can't do. So come on. As people of God, don't look around at some of these issues we talked about today and you see on the news and be hopeless. We should be people of great hope. And we're living in a hopeless society. Guess what? Hope is going to shine true. So listen, you've got to set your hope on what he's doing. He is bringing a great awakening. When you see all this misery and all this brokenness, don't get upset and be like, oh, everything's lost now. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Satan's overplayed his hands. And his and what he the lie he has fed is being exposed. Hasn't made anyone happy. Hasn't made anyone whole. Hasn't made anyone nice <laughs> and kind. Come on, come on, can we just agree together? Can we just agree together? Can we agree together on this before we go? Jesus, we look for your hand. We look for your hand in every single thing that's happening. Every lie that's being promoted in our culture. Father, we just pray that you would expose the lies and as you expose them, people who have come under those lies would realize how good you are because the lie has been so oppressive. Father, we just pray right now in Jesus' name that truth would begin to ring true. Father, and we just pray for your church. We pray for us. We pray for every church that preaches the gospel. Father, fill our mouths with praise. Father, fill our mouths with your gospel. Fill our mouths with hope that there's a hope in you. Father, we should not be a hopeless people. We should be the people of greatest hope in this society. Jesus, there is nothing you can't do. And even now, strongholds in our culture that the enemy has built over decades in a day can crumble. 
in a day that can be exposed. They can crumble in a day. Father, right now, in Jesus' name, we pray that people would see your goodness and your greatness through us. We pray for signs and wonders coupled with your gospel that reveal your goodness. Father, we pray for a harvest of souls. We pray for a harvest of souls. We pray for a great awakening to shake our land. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're at work. Remind us of who we are. Help us not to forget it. Sons and daughters of God. Redeemed image bearers of God. That's who we are. Thank you, Father. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. Yes. Yes, do it, Jesus. We believe in you. You are good. You are good. You're willing that none should perish. Fill us with that hope, Lord. Nothing is as strong as your blood. Yes. No, nothing is as strong as your blood. Yes. No, nothing is as strong as your blood. Yes. before you go man we can't add enough courage to people you can't over encourage people if you're new I'd love to meet you I'm gonna I'm gonna walk on back there but would you encourage them before you go let's pray together our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.